question uh, which, which Luke has brought us face to face over and over again uh, throughout these first nine chapters of his gospel account. It's, it's a question we've seen John the Baptist wrestle with from a desert fortress roughly five miles from the Dead Sea. It's a question we've seen Herod wrestle with and wondering if the miracles of Jesus were really the work of John having risen from the grave. It's a question we've seen the disciples wrestle with. Who is this that commands even winds and water and they obey him? This morning's passage brings before us two of the great confessions of scripture. One, Peter's confession of Jesus the Messiah, and two, Jesus' confession that the Messiah must die and what it means to be his disciple truly. If you pick up the story in verse 18 of chapter nine, Luke tells us now it happened that as he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? Jesus and the disciples, they they find themselves near the the foot of Mount Hermon in the region known as Caesarea Philippi, an incredibly pagan area just north of Galilee. And Jesus knows that there's lots of speculation as to who he is, some mistaking him for John the Baptist, others Elijah, perhaps one of the other prophets of old having risen. A case of mistaken identity that Jesus confirms with the disciples as he asks them what the crowds are saying about him. And they answered, verse 19, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, others, one of the prophets of old, has risen. Here they they simply verify what they've been hearing going back to last week in the villages and towns to which they had recently been sent on their missionary journey. Certainly noble misconceptions, right? There are worse people to be uh, misrepresented for. John the Baptist, the greatest man to have ever lived. Elijah, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. But, but misconceptions nonetheless. There's, we say this all the time, there's nothing new under the sun. As many today continue to speculate about who Jesus was, some believe him to have been a pithy philosopher, cranking out fortune cookie statements on hillsides. Others, nothing more than a good moral teacher to be emulated. Some might even say a prophet. I mean, there are many noble misconceptions today regarding the person of Jesus Christ, the thoughts and perspectives of the crowd, so to speak. Verse 20, then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? It's arguably the most important question in all of the Bible. Every pillar of Christian doctrine, every theological concept comes back to Jesus Christ. You can't study the the doctrine of creation apart from Jesus because all things were created through him and for him. You can't study the, the doctrine of man apart from Jesus because you and I are made in his image and are being conformed to his image. Can't study the doctrine of angelic beings apart from Jesus because angels minister to him and sing of his glory. You can't study the doctrine of demonic beings apart from Jesus because he is our victory over the powers of evil, our Christus victor. You can't study the doctrine of salvation apart from Jesus because there is no salvation apart from Jesus. You can't study the doctrine of the Holy Spirit apart from Jesus because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Christ. We can't study the doctrine of the church apart from Jesus because there is no body without the head who is Christ. You can't study the doctrine of the end times without Jesus because it's Jesus who will someday return to set all things right. He's in every chapter of the systematic theology book. But who do you say that I am? 
Jesus gets incredibly personal because it's ultimately a personal question, one that each of us must answer for ourselves. In the hearts of one comment, or words of one commentator, heaven has a one question pop quiz for all of humanity. Who do you say Jesus is? Here's our, our church's confessional answer to that question. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus is eternal God. All things were and are created by him, through him, and for him. Not only are all things created by him, all things are sustained by him. He is the incarnate word of God who without ceasing to be God became flesh and dwelt among man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He is both fully God and fully man, the God man. He came on a mission to save sinners. He lived a sinless life, the life we couldn't live. He died in accordance with the scriptures as our substitute sin bearer. In this, he revealed God's love and preserved God's justice. He was buried, rose bodily on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and sits at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning as our triumphant, exalted king and interceding to God the Father on our behalf as our perfect high priest and advocate until he returns. Hallelujah. Jesus asked his disciples, but who do you say that I am? as we reach the climax of the first part of, of Luke's gospel account, having to do with the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. Just who is this Jesus truly? And Peter answered, second part of verse 20, the Christ of God, the anointed one, Messiah, a title that we first saw in Luke's gospel account going all the way back to chapter two, as the angel said uh, to the shepherds who were watching over their flock by night, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, a Savior for the people, good news for the world, the Son of the divine. C.S. Lewis once wrote in one of his more famous writings, Mere Christianity, some of you have seen this quote more than once, he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. Namely, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You could spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. As I've said before, it's more sensible to say that, that Jesus was the David Koresh of his day than to say that he was a good teacher and nothing more. It's more sensible to say that Jesus was one of the greatest liars of all times, perhaps outdoing Satan as the true father of lies, than to say that he was a good teacher and nothing more. Peter declares, you are the Christ of God. Peter makes a right confession, though he doesn't, yet fully understand the fullness of what that confession means. When we look at the synoptic gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
We're meant to see a two-act play of sorts. First act is meant to answer the question, who is this Jesus? Who, who is this one who calms the wind and the waves with his voice? Who is this one who makes blind men see and lame men walk? Who is this one who casts out demons by the legions and raises people from the dead? The first act is meant to answer that question, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And so it makes sense that the curtain would close, so to speak, as Peter declares, you are the Christ of God. House lights come up. We all get up for intermission thinking, I'd follow Jesus. I mean, he clearly speaks as one with authority. He clearly exhibits great power. People are looking for a Messiah. Jesus surely exhibits some Messiah-like qualities as we've seen up to this point, nine chapters in. The call to follow Jesus, it's it's pretty compelling at this point. You can just imagine what that intermission would be like. What's What's he gonna do next? What kind of crazy healing or exorcism is gonna take place when they bring the house lights back down? How's he gonna resolve this conflict with the Pharisees? Is it gonna end in an all-out war? I'm placing my bet on the one who raises people from the dead, the one healing blind men and lepers, the one calming the wind and waves with his voice. Can't wait to see how this story ends. It's gonna be good. You got your popcorn in hand? House lights are brought down, curtain opens, and without so much as a warm-up line, the second act begins Verse 21, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You can just see the gaping mouths in the theater. Like, what what did he just say? All of a sudden, popcorn, afterthought. Twist of, of plot revealed here. Nothing more important now than trying to make sense of where this thing's going. I didn't see that one coming, Jesus. Did I hear you rightly? Sounded like you used words like suffer and rejected and killed. And you're not talking about the villains. You're talking about yourself. You can see why, according to Matthew and Mark's gospel accounts, that Peter would respond, that's not gonna happen, Jesus. That's not how this story's gonna play out. The first act is meant to answer the question, who is Jesus? The second act is meant to answer the question, why is he here? What what is he here to do? And as the curtain opens on act two, Jesus answers that question saying, I'm here to suffer and die. The king must die. A prophecy that the disciples struggle to accept all the way up to the last chapter of Luke's gospel account as we see the two disciples on the road to Emmaus devastated and disoriented. Why must the king die? And many of you know this, but it serves our hearts well to hear it over and over again, doesn't it? Psalm 49, verses seven and eight. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. The Bible declares, Paul tells us, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. Someone's gotta die. Someone's gotta bear the curse. We see it in movies all the time. This idea of substitutional sacrifice. 
Katniss volunteering his tribute in order to, to save her sister from certain death. Bruce Willis's character in Armageddon choosing to die so that others might live. Bing Bong sacrificing himself so that joy can make it out of the pit of despair. There's this theme of redemption through sacrifice threaded into the tapestry of our story and we just can't seem to escape it. Even Hollywood over and over and over again keeps telling it. Jesus says the king must die and ultimately so that we might live. Declaring on the other side of his death, a resurrection, predicting the three days later empty tomb. But then Jesus goes on to say something that sounds completely counterintuitive to everything he's just said. He says, I must die, and he knows in saying it so that it, we might live. And then he follows it with, and if you wanna follow me, you too must die. James read these verses just a moment ago. Verse 23, and he, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus says these kind of upside down crazy things all the time, doesn't he? The last shall be first, the first shall be last, the proud shall be laid low, the humble shall be exalted. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We're, we're about to move into a repeat theme similar to the first half of this book, which was who is Jesus. The second half, we'll see it over and over again. What has he come to do to accomplish and what does it mean for our lives? Some of the harder statements to come. In essence, Jesus begins to argue here that Christianity is not easy believism. I prayed a prayer back in the day. I really believe I meant it. So I'm just good to coast to my death. I got my ticket to heaven. Now Jesus says, if you truly wanna follow me, two things are required, self-denial and cross-bearing, which are really actually two perspectives on the same reality. Let me, let me put a question before us. When you think of self-denial, what comes to mind? Maybe you've heard it said along the way, God is more interested in your holiness than your happiness. And we've talked about this some as a church along the way. I mean, after all, there are plenty of things in this world that offer fleeting happiness that are incredibly troublesome, even wicked, right? But the response to that worldly form of hedonistic thinking, it's not to pit happiness against holiness. It's, it's not to, to pit duty against delight, in fact, I would argue that that deeply dishonors God. As a borrowed example from John Piper, I'll never forget hearing this illustration and I'll make it my own now. Just, I want you to envision, if I were to come, come home later on this afternoon, having bought flowers for my wife, up to the front door, ring the doorbell, bouquet in hand, my wife answers, and I look at her and I say, I want you to have these, and I wanna take you out to dinner tonight because I love you, and I've gotta get time with you. And imagine if she were to say, what prompted you to, to do this? What, what's the motivation here, honey? Imagine if I were to then say to her, well, it's my duty. I'm your husband. That's what husbands are supposed to do. You imagine how that would go? 
poorly, right? We wouldn't make it to dinner. What do you mean it's your duty? It's your obligation. Let's rewind that and imagine that I were to respond a little differently and say, nothing would make me happier than to take you out tonight. It makes my heart happy, full of joy at the thought of sitting across the table from you and conversing for a couple of hours and spending time with each other. I don't think that she would then respond with, nothing would make you happier, selfish. That's not how that works. There's something that honors her in my finding the fullness of happiness in being with her. I'm trying to start here now before we get further into Luke's gospel account and we hear these calls to die to to, to try to emphasize that the call to die is actually to gain and to experience the fullness of happiness. All right, that's where this thing is going. I don't wanna diminish or minimize the significance of what Jesus is calling us to in terms of suffering and self-denial and cross-bearing. I just want us to see, because I'm not sure I'll come back to this very much moving forward in this series. I just want us to see that in doing what Jesus is calling us to do, we're the winners. I've said this before, some of you know this. I'm a Christian hedonist. And what that means is that ultimately, I believe that we're called to do everything we possibly can to pursue happiness to the fullest extent, namely in the God who designed us to be happy in him. Knowing that the happier, the gladder, the more joyful, the more satisfied we are in him, the more honored, the more magnified, the more glorified he will be in us. Meaning that self-denial is not running as fast as we can from any and everything that could possibly make us happy. Self-denial is the the rejection of all pursuits of self-glorification for the sake of Christ's exaltation. It's the abandoning of empty wells for the true fount of everlasting joy. That's what this is about. That following Jesus will cost us our own glory. Following Jesus will cost us our own dreams and ambition. And following Jesus, he gets to establish our dreams and ambitions. He gets to wear the crown as the rightful king and you and I get to be glad-hearted citizens in his good eternal kingdom. And according to the scriptures, that's the only way to win in the end. The only path to true eternal happiness. Every other hand, you could say, is a losing hand. It's a path to eternal sorrow. What about cross-bearing? How does that language help in offering a second perspective on the same reality? Well, if self-denial means saying no to something, namely ourselves as the enthroned ones, then cross-bearing means saying yes to something, namely sacrifice, death, a call to die. That as Christians, our lives are not our own. They're God's to do whatever uh, he pleases with them. In other words, it's not just about not living for our own glory, self-denial, but giving up our lives in willing sacrifice for his glory, cross-bearing. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer once famously said in his great work, The Cost of Discipleship, when Christ bids a man to follow him, he bids that man to come and die. Jesus presents us with a question. Will you give up your life for the sake of Jesus Christ? Is that what you signed up for? If not, you didn't sign up for Christianity. 
following Jesus will cost us our kingdoms, our glory, our very lives. Which brings me to the million dollar question. Why, why would anybody sign up for that? To which Jesus declares, verse 25, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? It's a, it's a rhetorical question, meaning that it doesn't. It doesn't profit a man to gain the whole world and lose or forfeit himself. We saw it in our study of Ecclesiastes if you were around then. You can make the big bucks. You can build the perfect family. You can buy the perfect house. You can do all those things and end up buried under the rubble of your own fallen kingdom. Some might say, well, that sounds better than self-denial and cross-bearing. And I would argue those are the words of a person who can't seem to take their eyes off of that which they may be called to give up and therefore never seeing the beauty and supreme worth of that which they might gain. Comes back to that parable, that shortest of parables, Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven, like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In his joy, right? Don't, don't miss right in the middle of that parable, sells all that he has. That's just another way of saying self-denial and cross-bearing. And the man in the parable embraces that, not begrudgingly, but happily. He sees something in that field so priceless that emptying his bank account in order to obtain that field seems profitable to him. It's like the woman with her alabaster flask of perfumed oil that we saw back in chapter seven. I'll give all of this up if I can be at the feet of Jesus for a little while. Or how about the apostle Paul, Philippians 3. Very famous passage of scripture. Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, garbage, in order that I may gain Christ. That's Christian hedonism. Giving up tin to obtain gold. I would argue no one grumbles his or her way into the kingdom. That's not how it works. In coming face to face with the supreme worth of God in Jesus Christ, no way. He's the treasure hidden in a field. He's the pearl of great value. Lewis says elsewhere in another of his famous quotes, the weight of glory, he says, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, he says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, he says, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. 
we are far too easily pleased. Another way to make sense or, or, or say this morning's passage in paraphrase, self-denial and cross-bearing is the forsaking of mud that we might enjoy the sea. Doesn't mean that life will be easy. We've surely seen in the lives of men like John the Baptist that that's not always true. And yet, even John gained in the end, even in, and especially in the cross-bearing of his own beheading, John won. <laughs> By losing his life, he saved it, as do we in giving up our lives for the sake of Christ. He goes on to say in verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. It really boils down to this. Jesus is either infinitely valuable to us, worth giving up everything to obtain him as our great possession, or we should be ashamed of him. There is no third option. There is no sort of cultural Christian middle ground. Luke has shown us that numerous times over. He hasn't given us a third way. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary, says, when it comes right down to it, you either deny Christ and follow yourself or you deny yourself and follow Christ because you can't follow Christ and yourself. Jesus, here in this morning's passage, he says, crown me or crucify me. Deny yourself or deny me. Treasure me and you'll be my treasured possession. Be ashamed of me and I'll be ashamed of you when I return. And then he gives what I believe to be words of kindness in closing out this particular scene in Luke's gospel account, verse 27. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Scholars are, are a bit divided on what Jesus means here, but, but many of them believe that Jesus is referring here to the transfiguration, connecting this verse to the very next passage in Luke's gospel account. We'll get there next Sunday. The mount on which Jesus would go on to radiate with the glory of God in the presence of Peter, James, and John. Why do I, what do I mean when I say this is the kindness of Jesus in saying these words and then the story that follows up on that mountain? Well, think about this. Jesus has just given some hard words on what it means to be a disciple. And now we're gonna see him reveal himself on the Mount of Transfiguration in a unique way that visibly shows his supreme worth. It's a visible in the gospels moment where we see the treasure hidden in a field displayed in all of his beauty, glory, radiance. It's Jesus declaring, shouting, both audibly and visibly, I'm it. I'm worth everything I'm calling you to. So come and die that you might live, that you, like John the Baptist, might win in the end, no matter how hard it gets. I'll leave us with a quote this morning. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, sums up this morning's passage, saying this, who... Who do you say Jesus is? Is he a fraud? Is he only a prophet? Is he merely a great moral teacher? 
Or is he the Messiah, God's son, the savior and king? If you confess him as Christ, you must cling to his bloody cross as your only hope. And you must take up your own cross as you deny yourself and follow him. Do you do this, he asks? If so, you have made a good confession.